CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to the Science of Success. Introducing your host, Matt Bodner. Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet with more than 4 million downloads and listeners in over 100 countries. In this episode, we discuss what creates great performance at work, uncover how you can do better work in fewer hours, get rid of wasted meetings with hacks you can use to make your meetings radically more productive, finally remove the things that are distracting you, learn the recipe you need to say no to your boss the right way, and focus on the biggest things that will actually create the most value in your work. We share all of these lessons and much more with our guest this week, Dr. Morton Hansen. I'm going to tell you why you've been missing out on some incredibly cool stuff if you haven't signed up for our email list yet. All you have to do to sign up is to go to successpodcast.com and sign up right on the homepage. On top of tons of subscriber-only content, exclusive access, and live Q&As with previous guests, monthly giveaways, and much more, I also created an epic free video course just for you. It's called How to Create Time for What Matters Most Even When You're Really Busy. Email subscribers have been raving about this guide. You can get all of that and much more by going to successpodcast.com and signing up right on the homepage or by texting the word SMARTER to the number 44222 on your phone. If you like what I do on Science of Success, my email list is the number one way to engage with me and go deeper on what I discuss on the show, including free guides, actionable takeaways, exclusive content, and much, much more. Sign up for my email list today by going to successpodcast.com and signing up right on the homepage. Or if you're on the go, if you're on your phone right now, it's even easier. Just text the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. 
I can't wait to show you all the exciting things you'll get when you sign up and join the email list. In our previous episode, we explored the mind-bending science of genetic engineering and why it's going to change everything in our lives, whether we want it to or not. We shared crazy stories and examples from the cutting edge of science and looked at shocking examples from around the world of what is going on with human genetic science. We also explored the science of immortality and shared a few simple life hacks you can implement right now to extend your life and live past 100 with our previous guest, Jamie Metzel. If you want to have your worldview challenged by some mind-bending science, listen to our previous episode. Now for our interview with Morton. Today, we have another exciting guest on the show, Morton Hansen. Morton is a management professor at UC Berkeley and a faculty member at Apple University. His academic research has won several prestigious awards, and he's ranked as one of the world's most influential management thinkers by Thinkers 50. He was also a manager at the Boston Consulting Group, where he advised corporate clients worldwide. He's the author of the best-selling Great at Work, Great by Choice, and Collaboration. Morton, welcome to the Science of Success. Thank you for having me. Well, we're really excited to have you on the show today. There's so many topics and themes from Great at Work that I think are really important today. I'd love to begin with one of the fundamental premises of the book, which is this idea that many people today are working potentially harder than they've ever worked. They're working so hard. And yet, as you put it, they might be working the wrong way. What does that mean? Yeah, we did a study of 5,000 people and looked at how they work and their performance. And we found that most people work the wrong way. And the main thing they do wrong is that they think that more is better. So more tasks, more activities, more hours, more FaceTime in the office, more phone calls, more business trips. The more you can do, likely the better you will perform. That's kind of the premise, I think, of so many people going to work, including myself, you know, I've done it myself. And it turns out to be wrong. The very top performers across professions, across industries, across age groups, tend to be those who are really, really good at picking the, the most important priorities and engaging that extreme focus. And then they go all in on the few things that matters the most. Those are the top performers. And I would say in our data, 10 to 15% of people are able to do that. And then they got a whole group of 6 to 70% who are just doing too many things. And it's an interesting reason why, why is it like that? And we have this myth that if we can get more done in a day, so we ask the question, uh, given the hours I have, how much can I get done? As opposed to asking, uh, given the hours I have, how few things can I really excel in? And at in workplace, we have bosses who think like this, and therefore, if they think like this, they will have their direct reports will be doing it as well. So up and down the hierarchy, we get this kind of work performance. That is, and what is happening is that productivity is going down. It's not going up. And it comes to, for example, working hours. We think that if you can really perform and do really well, work a lot of hours. You know, The ones who work 70 hours will do better than those who work 60 hours. Those who work eight hours will outperform those who do 70 hours and so on. And it's not true. What we found in our data is that there is a threshold. So you gotta work hours, you gotta work hard. You can't be a slacker, obviously. But if you have a full-time job and you get to about 50 hours, that's probably where you should be. 
And then beyond 50 hours, the marginal productivity goes down very, very quickly, and then it turns negative. So another data said beyond 65 hours per week, people start performing less well overall, which is pretty interesting. You know, you're adding the hours and you're just underperforming. Now, 50 hours per week on average, that's hard work. That's not being a slacker. And the question is not to add more hours. It's more to ask the question, what should I do in those hours, those 50 hours? So many great points. I think the notion that it's not about being a slacker is really important. But even what you just said a second ago, that it's not about trying to cram extra hours into your week. It's about really intentionally using the hours that you already have and focusing them the right way. Yeah, and it's, I had to learn that the hard way myself. When I started out my career at the Boston Consulting Group in London, I thought that the way to perform was just to work harder than anyone else. So I was there you know, during the night and early mornings, and I worked incredibly hard, probably putting in 90 hours a week was that kind of work. And one day I worked on a project with another teammate, and one night I went looking for her, and I couldn't find her. And... I saw kind of some of her work output and it was incredibly good. And she was a top performer on that team, on that project. And I asked her, you know, cubicle mate, you know, wh where is she? And he said, well, you know, she goes home every night at 6 p.m. She works from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. And I just, you know, struck me, wow, she's the top performer, yet she is working about 50 hours a week at BCG, which is a very sort of hardworking place. And I was up there at 90 hours doing well, but not as well as, as she did. And I always puzzled me saying, what did she do? I never found that out, but I did find out that I, if I did this study of 5,000 people, I could come up with evidence-based insights into what it means to be a top performer at work. So I had to modify my own approach, you know, not working those 80, 90 hours a week. And you just touched on something that you said at the very beginning of the interview, but it really bears repeating and extrapolating a little bit more, which is that this is not an opinion. This is data backed. This is evidence validated. You did a study of 5,000 people and came back with these conclusions, these insights. This isn't just a pie in the sky pontificating. It's something that's, that's really concretely grounded in evidence about performance at work. Yeah. And I started by saying what creates great performance at work. And in my previous book, I had done a book called Great by Choice with Jim Collins, who authored Good to Great. I think many people know that book. And we want to do a follow-on book called Great by Choice. And that's studying why are some companies much better performers than others. And we compared, you know, the top performing companies to the rest. And then I want to do this other study, this Great at Work book, where I want to do the same methodology for individuals and leaders and teams. And so I'm comparing, you know, the contrast between all kinds of people and all kinds of performance. You can't just study the very best and see what they have in common. That's a flawed methodology because you don't know what the underperformers are doing. They might be doing the same things. So you need to study people who are both, you know, low performers, mid performers, high performers, and then you need to figure out is there anything that they do that is different, that differentiates the top performers? And do they actually lead to the performance? Are they connect, what they do, are they connected to the performance? And that's a study I did of the 5,000 people and it's evidence-based. And I didn't set out with an opinion that I wanted to prove. 
I just asked the question, what do they do differently? And what came back was this, the fact that they focus and that they work hard 50, 60 hours a week, but not more. If what had come back was, you know what? They work the hardest of all. They are the most hours of all. Well, so be it. That would be the finding. And we have to live with that. But it's not the case. So this is evidence-based. And that, that to me as an academic is very important. And it's interesting to me too that so many people in the workplace are working in the wrong way when the evidence suggests otherwise. So the first principle I have, which I think is important, I would like to unpack it because I think it's misunderstood a little bit, this idea of focus. I call it do less than obsess. And the question is, why focus? So I was actually perplexed by that because people before me, even Stephen Covey, you know, many years ago in The Seven Habits of Effective People, terrific book, published 30 years ago, said, you know, you should focus. So many other authors said focus. But what focus means in the workplace is that I do fewer things, fewer tasks, fewer priorities. Now, that doesn't mean that you're doing better. What about your colleague down the corridor who's doing five projects and I'm doing one project? Or he or she is doing, you know, 20 sales calls to customers and I'm doing five. They're doing more than me. So they should, in theory, perform better than I do. So it's not clear that focus is a great strategy to work. And you also have to say no to your boss. That's the other thing. So, you know, you may upset your boss because you have to focus and prioritize and say no to your boss. So it wasn't clear to me. And when we started looking at just the focus, you know, do you prioritize at work is the question. There wasn't a big performance difference between, you know, the people who were focusing and those who weren't. So that's not the answer. It's not the choice of focusing. That's where we had gotten it wrong. It's not like I say, you know what, I only want to do three projects and not five or six. The question, the real insight is this word I use, obsession. Now that sounds like a little strange word, you know, why should I obsess? Obsession is the path to great performance. It's the intensity of your effort. And you're going all in, paying fanatic attention to detail, making sure that whatever you do, whether it's creating a PowerPoint slide or making a customer call or being in a meeting, that in that moment you excel. And to excel in that moment requires incredible preparation, incredible focus and intensity of effort. And you can only do that if you work on a few things. When you start taking on many things at work, you spread yourself thin and every one of those things you do half-baked. You're mediocre in many things. So the real key is obsession. And obsession requires focus. And I, I tell a great story in the book. It's not my story, so, but it's a great story about the greatest sushi chef in the world. And it's from a documentary movie called Jiro Dreams of Sushi. Probably many of your listeners have seen that movie. And this is a three-star Michelin restaurant sushi chef in Japan. He has a tiny little restaurant in a subway station in Tokyo. It sees about 12 people and he serves 20 pieces of sushi, right? Incredibly focused, there's nothing else. 20 pieces of sushi. And each piece is made to perfection, absolute perfection. For example, the octopus sushi piece. He has figured out that the, what you have to do is to hand massage 
the octopus for 50 minutes, like five zero minutes. So here you have, you know, the chef standing there and hand massaging the octopus in order for that to be perfect. Now you can only do that if you're really, really focused. If he's serving all kinds of things, he can't do that. So I want to tell people, and, and this is a good question for your listeners, do you massage the octopus in your work? What's equivalent of that in your work? So the root to performance is really around that obsession. That's a great question. I love the idea of massaging the octopus. It's a great visual that really helps bring that out and jars you out of the complacency that you might be being about what you're really focused on. Yeah. And the other thing is, so the question we asked in this research was what creates great performance, right? And that was the only thing. And this is the do less than obsess is one of the key ingredient. And many people today feel overwhelmed at work. They feel like they're doing too many things. There's not enough time to get it all done. And one of the things that they do badly is that they are not very good at saying no. I believe that one of the greatest professional skills required going forward and today is the ability to say no. No to your colleagues, to your boss, to your customers, to your suppliers, whatever line of work you are in. And to do that, you have to do it appropriately, not in a bad way so that you upset people. But that ability is so fundamental because if you don't say no, you just take on so many things. And what you end up happening is you spread yourself in and you start doing mediocre work. And people will notice that. So it's going to backfire on you. Now, people ask me, well, so how do I say no? And it's difficult, particularly if you are, you know, you're young, you're 25, 30 years old, and, and you're trying to climb the career ladder at work, and boss comes in, you know, and you're doing two or three projects, and you think you're already played is full. And your boss comes to you and say, hey, you know, can you take on an additional assignment? And you know if you say yes, you're going to struggle to complete everything. But it's hard at that moment to say no. So here's my recipe for how to say no in a proper way. So your boss comes to you and say, can you take on additional assignment? What you have to say is, okay, how important is this in relationship to the other ones that I'm already working on? Which of these should I do first? When you ask that question back, you're putting the burden of prioritization on the shoulders of your boss. And that is actually your boss's job. And manager's job is to prioritize. So now, it's, as opposed to saying yes or no, you put the burden back with a question. That's the right tactic. Now, your boss might say, all of them are important. Can you get them all done? And then you have to kind of challenge again. And the question is, I cannot get them all done in time. Which of these should I get done in the first couple of weeks? If you ask that question, again, back to your boss to prioritize. And what we found in our research, surprisingly so, because we talked to a lot of bosses, is that they accept that. They understand that you can't get it all done right away. And then they start thinking about it. And then they make the prioritization for you. And now you are able to focus. This is a really good tactic. And we found several people, many people in our study, that did this, and they did it well. And those are the kind of the performers who are able to stay focused. Yeah, that's such a great tactic. And saying no is something that I know I personally struggle with. I know so many people struggle with. And it's so hard in today's world, especially when 
you push back, you say no to somebody and then they fire back. Well, aren't you talented? Aren't you know, you do such a great job. I think you can handle all of these projects. Yeah. And that's the irony. And we find that I call it the curse of competence. And the curse of competence is that you sit there and you do some really good work and people start noticing, wow, this person is really good. Now, one of the reasons where you're doing good work is because you're focused on a few things. And then they come and tell you, well, I think that person can do something else. You know, let's get John that assignment. He's doing such great work. And then John gets a couple of more assignments and then we're spread to thin and then we can start doing mediocre work. That's a curse of competence. People come to you because you're good. And then you erode the competence and you erode your performance because you cannot say no. Here the other day, I spoke to somebody who's landed her first job. Very excited, right? Starting a career, really liked the job and was overwhelmed. And I said, what's going on? And she said, you know, I just got a few more assignments I need to do. And I said, why didn't you say no? And she said, you, you can't say no. You cannot say no in your first job to make an impression. And that's actually wrong. I understand it's difficult. That's why you have to be tactical about it. But now you're getting the other problem is that you can't complete those assignments really well. And the other thing we found in our studies that bosses and peers, they do notice whether work is sloppy or whether it's done really well. And they start forming opinions about you. They may not tell you, but they start forming opinions about you. You know, you were unprepared for the meeting. You hadn't really done all the readings and all the memos and all the documentations before the meeting. And you sit there and you're not as sharp as you should be. Or your PowerPoint slides have spelling errors and people start noticing. So I want to contextualize this in a particular context. And I'm curious what your insights might be for, I completely understand this for somebody who's an individual contributor in a specific role, really executing, working on projects and so forth. For somebody who has a broader purview, let's say they're an, you know, an investor in multiple different companies, something like that. How do you apply or think about that same lens of focus in that context? Yeah. So focus depends on the context, right? So if I'm a junior person sitting somewhere, I should be doing a few things, few tasks if I can. If I'm more senior, I can take on more. Bigger companies can take on more things than a startup and so on. If my strategy is portfolio investment, right? Whatever that portfolio is, like say, I'm, I mean, it could be a real estate agent. You know, you're not just pursuing one property. You have to have a whole set of customers. And if you're an investor, you know, you're investing in several stocks or whatever it is. So of course you have to have a portfolio. But the key here is if the execution of each one of those things depend on your effort, then you should be focusing. That's the key thing. You might invest in a few things as a passive investor, and then you might as well be broad because you are not involved in any one of those assets. You're not running the companies. You're not trying to do, you know, to make execute on the strategy of these companies. So your effort is not required. But if your effort is required, for example, if you are dealing with customers, what is your customer portfolio? And let's say you work in a company and you have 10 corporate customers. Now, your effort to make them happy really, really matters. So you're spreading your time across 10. Now, kind of you go to 20, it's going to be much more difficult for you. And you take on 20 customers, then you have only half the time you had before and so on. So you need to kind of make a trade-off. It's a judgment call in the moment. But a lot of people ask, you know, how many can I take on? The better question is, how few can I take on and still excel? 
Maybe you don't need to go from 10 to 20. Maybe you should go from 10 to eight. And then eight will be so incredibly good, those customer relationships, that you will just sell so much more than anyone else. That's a great example. And it in the portfolio context, it makes total sense that it's really a question of whether or not the activity hinges on your specific effort. And if it does, whatever your effort is going into, the research shows you have to be really focused on that. Yeah, because the execution matters, right? So I tell the story, it's a great story in the book about the race to the South Pole in 1911. There were two teams racing. There was one, the British team, Robert Falcon Scott, and the Norwegian team, Roel Amundsen. And back in those days, they had five transportation methods they could choose from. They could pull the sled themselves, they could use dogs, ponies, a motor sledge, and ski. And the question then is, you know, how many of these should you actually take? Should you take all five methods and try to go to the South Pole with all five? Or should you just pick one or two? And it's a portfolio question. If you pick five, you have backups, you have options, because you don't know what's gonna work out there. And if you pick one, the problem is that if it doesn't work, you know, you're not gonna, you know, get there. Now, if you take five, then you become you risk becoming mediocre in all because how well you execute each one of those depend on your effort. So it's a real great trade-off between the two. And taking five, you know, turned out to be very, very difficult. Robert Falcon Scott on the British team, he took five and it slowed him down because he became mediocre at five methods. It makes total sense. Don't be mediocre at five things when you could be great at one thing. Absolutely. And that's one of the keys to great performance. Now, then the question is, you know, going all in and becoming really, really good at something requires a drive, an effort, grit, tenacity, ambition, all those things, right? Otherwise, you would not become really, really great. So the question then is, where does that drive come from? And, you know, does it come from a promise of a greater paycheck, uh, promotion, status, climbing the career ladder? Yeah, of course, those things matter. Let's be honest about it. But we also found that what matters the most is call it the inner drive. It's the strong sense of passion and purpose in your job. And those are different. Passion is what excites you. It is what the world can give you. And purpose is what you can give the world, a sense of meaningful contribution to something beyond yourself, your company, your customer society, and so on. And so what we found is that people who have both they have a sense of passion and they have a sense of purpose. They have what we call focused energy, that when they get up in the morning and they go to work, they have that focused energy. And it prevents them from procrastinating. It prevents them from being easily distracted. Like they sit in front of the computer at work and they're trying to get something done. And you know how it easy it is to check, you know, your, your social media, you go to Instagram, you go to Facebook, whatever you do, or check on the internet, the latest news and buzz, you know, that distraction is just right in front of you. But if you have focused energy, you're much more, you know, less likely to do so and you get your stuff done. And here's the interesting thing. People who have purpose and passion, they don't work more hours than others. They just get more out of each hour they work because of that focus energy. That's a great way to define, those words are so often used synonymously. And I really like the distinction between the two of them, one of them being passion being more self-centered and purpose being more about what you're contributing. Yeah, and the great thing when you, like we did, we studied 5,000 people and we asked them about passion and purpose because these are personal kind of experiences. We could disentangle the two. 
because we found people that are low on both. We found people are high on passion, but low on purpose. People are high on purpose, but low on passion, right? They're not always the same. And what we found is that, you know, the worst place to be is to be low on both. Those people don't have energy at work. That's kind of obvious. The next one up is to have high passion and low on purpose. Then you do better. You're excited about what you do, even though you don't feel it purposeful. You might be selling stuff you don't believe in. The third thing is to be high on purpose and low on passion. You really feel like what you're doing is, is really important. Like you're working on a biotech and you're creating medicine, but you yourself are not excited about your job and what you do. And then the last thing is what I call P-square, having both. Then that's where you get the real performance boost because you have both. So we could actually separate out the two. And purpose seems to be more important than passion. And people who feel like they have purpose, they tend to perform a little bit better than people who have passion only, but not purpose. So how do we, in many ways, this, this is an age-old question, right? How do you start to find passion and purpose in your work, especially if you don't have it today? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And a lot of people, you know, millennials and others are, are looking for this. This has become far more important in your work than it used to be. So on the passion part, what we found is that there are different kinds of passion. And one is the obvious thing, you actually like the task itself, your work that you're sitting and doing every day. But there's also people passion. Are you excited about the people you work with? Then there is creative passion. Do you feel creative at work? Then there is success passion. Do you get the thrill of success really excites you? Because passion is about excitement. So I'm in sales, I'm closing deal, I'm going to bake-offs. I'm really excited about it. And that's another kind of passion. And do you feel that? Then there's a learning passion. Do you feel like you're growing in your job and developing? And if, if that's so, then you know your job gives you that opportunity. If you look at passion like that, that there are many dimensions of passion, then you can start crafting more passionate activity in a current role. Say you really get excited about learning new things and growing. Well, you can ask to go to training seminars. You can ask to go to conferences. You can sort of try to broaden your current job. And we found people who are trying to do that. They're just thinking about it as a circle that can become bigger and bigger and bigger because I'm finding new things to do. So that's the thing about passion. Then on purpose side, I think we have defined purpose incorrectly. Purpose, I call it a pyramid of purpose. At the very bottom of the pyramid is, you know, do what contributes. Are you providing value in your job? If you're sitting around doing things that other people don't find beneficial, you're just filling in forms and checking boxes and you get that done, but nobody really cares whether you're there or not. You have no value contribution. So you need, really need to think about, am I creating value for my company or for my organization in what I do? And if that's true, then you are actually having some kind of purpose. That's kind of the bottom layer of your pyramid. Then the next level up is, is it personally meaningful for you? It may not be, but it might be for others. And on that level, you know, there is this study of zookeepers out there and they were sort of asking zookeepers, what do you think about your job? And you know, one half of them said, it's a totally meaningless job and I'm only doing it for the paycheck and I'm literally just shoveling shit. <laughs> That's what they do. And they saw the job like that. Then the other half said, this is my calling. I'm saving endangered species by having this job. 
So the same kind of people, but totally different interpretation of the same kind of job. So the question you have to ask, you know, is it personally meaningful for me? And then there's a third part of the pyramid at the very top is a strong social mission that what I do, I think, contribute to society beyond making a profit for my company. And of course, people in healthcare, if I work in a hospital, I have that. But people have it in other places too. You know, there was a person we interviewed who was working out of a national, you know, a rental car place in Alaska. And she said, you know, most of my customers, they need a car because their other car has been in an accident and they come to me. I provide a service for them when they are in dire need of that service. And that's a different way of looking at something that looks like a trivial job. And then you kind of have that sense of social mission at the top of your pyramid. And what you have to do is to sort of look at these three questions for yourself. Do I really contribute value to my company and how can I do more of that? Second is what I do meaningful to me. And third, can I find that social mission in my job? Great strategies. And I really like how you give the example of the same job and yet people have very different responses to it. I want to come back and share a strategy that you talk about, which is, and, and this is coming back a little bit more towards focus, but the strategy of looking at your calendar and figuring out where you're currently spending your time and matching that up with your current goals and priorities. Tell me a little bit more about that and how to implement it. Yeah, let me turn that into sort of a tactic that the listeners can use because I use this with a bunch of management teams at this point in time after you know we figure out what people do after this study. And so, so here are the steps. First of all, you have to ask and answer the question, what are the three most valuable things that I can do in my job? And value here is defined as benefits for others, benefits for your company. And you kind of write those things down, three things, right? And then you pull up your calendar. This is step two. You pull up your calendar for the last two weeks and you roughly go through and you check mark each activity. You give it a one if it's clearly aligned with those three top value creating activities. You give it a one. You give it a two if it's somewhat aligned with those three activities. And then you give it a three if it's clearly not aligned with those three. So you go to a meeting and a meeting has nothing to do with those three. You have lunch with a colleague or you do other things. It's like in your three bucket. Now, once you've done that, it shouldn't take that long, you add up all the hours that were in category one, two, and three. And then you take category one and you ask yourself, how many hours did I spend in category one? Those are clearly aligned with your top three value creating activities. And then, or percentage of your time, right? And now when I do this with managers, like a team, usually what happens is that people don't have more than 40% of their time in category one. Sometimes this is a revelation for people. They said, I can't believe it. I was meeting with that person, you know, three or four times the last two weeks. And why did I do that? Totally unnecessary. And it could have been one meeting. I could have saved all the time. And why did I go to this other meeting? Stuff I had to do maybe, but I could also excuse myself. And why did I meet with this person for an hour when it could have been 15 minutes? 
So people find a lot of time wasting activities. In other words, they're spending most of the time at work not on the top three value creating activities. So then you get to the kind of step, the last step, which is, okay, how do I change this? And here you have to sort of first start by cutting out things you can cut out that are fluff. I don't really need it. I can find a way out of it. That's the first thing. And then the second thing is you have to say, okay, how do I get more time and effort for the top three? And this is difficult, but this is where you free up time in order to focus on the top three value creating activities. And what prevents people from doing this is that they're busy with busy work, routine staff meetings that take up too much time and they feel like they have to go to all of this. Or if you're a manager that you actually are scheduling all of this. And that's the stuff that has to go. So it becomes about disciplining how you spend your time. Now, I've done this with many people by now, this activity, and sometimes it comes to a shock to people. So for example, I did it with a management team in a high-tech company in Silicon Valley. We went through this activity. We actually went back for a month, not two weeks, but a month. And not a single person on that team spent more than 30% of their time on the top three. And so you start thinking, okay, how do I shift my time I spend? What do I say no to? What do I cut out? And what do I spend more time on? It's a fairly simple exercise. It's a very tangible, concrete. We can all do it. I do it myself. And personally, I fall into this trap myself. So in my job as an academic, it is how much time do I spend on creative writing and producing of new knowledge? And it's a constant struggle to keep that at, my goal is to keep that at about 40% on average. And, you know, I do other things. I do speaking, I do other activities that sort of traveling that takes time away. So then you have to be disciplined saying, okay, I need to find a way to spend more time on that. So for example, one strategy I have, one tactic is that I don't spend two hours every morning checking my emails. It is so easy to get into the email trap in the morning. You get up, you check your email, you're curious, what have people told me? And you got lots of emails and then you start answering them. And before you know it, 90 minutes has gone by and all you have done is to answer email. That may not be a top three value creating activity. So what I do instead is I reserve the morning, about two hours every morning, if I can, for my kind of creative part of my job. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Bite Clear Liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. 
Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims Bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. Hiring the right person takes time, time that you often don't have. But you shouldn't let a time crunch get in the way of finding the right candidates for your business. That's why LinkedIn is the best place to post your job. In fact, I was on LinkedIn Jobs this morning looking for candidates to fill a key role in one of my businesses. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with hard and soft skills you're looking for so that you can hire the right person quickly. You can look for things like collaboration, creativity, and adaptability, looking beyond just work skills and resumes to connect you with the candidates who are a perfect match for your business. That's how LinkedIn makes sure that your job post gets in front of the people you actually want to hire because they have a much better ability to get a deep insight into exactly who is the right candidate for you and your business. Find the right person meant for your business today with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want and the first $50 is on them. Just visit linkedin.com slash success. Again, that's linkedin.com slash success to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. What are some of the things that you've seen that stop people, let's say someone implements this exercise and then a week, a month later, they've fallen back into some of these old habits and routines. What are some of the biggest failure points you've seen for people who start down this journey, but then it ends up being a false start? Yeah, that's a that's the habit question, right? Changing habits, it turns out to be so difficult to do. I think you need to have some kind of device, some kind of thing that prevents you from falling back into old habits. So, you know, one I, for my own writing activity, this is what I did, just give an example of that. Because, of course, I was starting checking emails after a week of discipline. <laughs> That's what, what everybody does. But I wanted to write, you know, for two hours every morning. So I took an old computer. I stripped it of browsers, of everything that could be connected to the internet. It only had word processing left on it. And then I left my phone behind and I went to Starbucks and I sat there for two hours with this barren computer. And then, you know, I get the itch to go and check my email or go on, on you know, Instagram, but I couldn't because I have tied myself to the mast to use that Greek mythology kind of parable, which is I have prevented myself from doing that. 
so that's that's one thing i think you need to find that thing that kind of a rule and this goes to you know exercise and diet right it's the same kind of routine you have to find yourself so you know you've got to find a rule that works for you so my wife for example she wants to go you know stationary biking every day which is a hard thing to do because it's boring but then she has a rule she can only watch her favorite tv show on an ipad while she's on the bike, right? Those two go together and that iPad stays on the bike. So then, you know, I want to see the TV show and I'm on the bike. Now I put the two together, you know, it's easier now. Exercise in the morning, what I do is I get up and I just go straight to the health club and I shower there. So then, you know, I get out of the house, grab a cup of coffee and go. And then it's easier than saying, I'm gonna do it later in the day because I won't do it. So you got to find those those little routines. And we found people, you know, have been very creative at work and how they do this. You know, one cubicle open landscape, cubicle office, what they had, they had a routine there. You had these armbands around your arm. And if it was red, if you put on the red, you shouldn't be disturbed. You were in your focus zone. And if it was green, you can come and ask people questions. So it's a signal to your coworkers. Stuff like that helps people focusing. And what about somebody who's a manager that has to spend a lot more of their time in meetings with their team? You know, the vast majority of their work is taking all these meetings because I think that it intuitively makes sense to me to have a schedule like this for someone who's more of a creator that needs alone time, productive focus time. What about someone who needs to have a huge chunk of their calendar dedicated to checking in with team members and managing people and meeting with their boss and so forth? Yeah, I mean, for managers, part of the top three value-creating activities is to focus on people, is to have those meetings and check-ins with people. That is the job. But here again, people are incredibly unfocused. When we speak to managers, of course, their days are filled with meetings. But the question then is, are those meetings effective? And, you know, more than 65% of meetings, according to our data, are ineffective. So... What they do is that they spend their day wasting their time in ineffective meetings. That doesn't mean you shouldn't do the meetings. It just means you should turn them effective. And here are a few things that people can do. So it turns out, which is incredibly surprising, that people have a default and how long the meeting should last. And usually it's driven by the software that company has implemented. So if you have Google Calendar and default in the calendar is an hour, then people schedule an hour meetings which is crazy. Why an hour? I met so many companies now that they have an hour as default or maybe 45 minutes. But meetings, some meetings should only take 15 minutes. You don't need the half hour or the hour. And some meetings should take five hours. But it seems to be driven by the default of the system. So you need to change the default of the system. So one rule I have for managers, I say, or I provoke them by saying, how about start cutting your meetings in half? So half the time, if it's an hour meeting schedule, try half an hour. If it's half an hour, try 50 minutes. And then the question is, if it's one-on-one, fine. But if there's a lot of people in the meeting, what about cutting the number of invitees in half? Because do all those people need to be there? That's a very good question. Maybe they don't. Or maybe you can have sort of like a two-hour staff meeting and you can have people come and go. And you're freeing up time. You're much more effective. So there are these simple things you can do to turn meetings more effective. Then the other thing is a lot of meetings are scheduled because you want to have a discussion 
a debate about important topics. That's why you call people into the meeting, right? Those, those kinds of meetings, decision-making meetings, debate meetings, discussion meetings. And I have a whole chapter on this in the book. This is one of the key principles in the book is how do you lead those meetings properly? Because most people don't. And I call that principle fight and unite. What you need in meetings of that kind is a good fight. That people feel they can speak up, that people feel that they can contribute, that the manager is asking the quiet, the introverted to speak up and invite them to be part of it. That you have a debate where you're building on each other's point of view as opposed to shouting down each other. Those are elements of a great debate. And it's a good fight. You don't want to have a culture of being nice. Nice is not the objective. It is to have a fight around ideas and arguments and not make it personal. And lots of people are really bad at that. Sometimes companies call this principle disagree and commit. And then you have to make decisions. And consensus is the enemy of good work. Consensus leads to groupthink, where people are just going along to get along. They don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to be the spoiler of the consensus. So let's not have the debate. Let's not say no to something because I want this group to come to consensus. We don't want consensus, but we need people that are decision makers in meetings and they say, we're gonna make a decision. And once we made a decision, we need to fall in line. There's been a time for debate. There's a time for decision. There's a time for implementation. And that's where we need to fall in line. And some people and some companies, they don't. They have rematch. Okay, I didn't like the way the decision went, so I'm gonna have, I want a rematch. I want another meeting. And that's not okay. So it's about having a great fight and then unite behind that decision being made. When you have meetings like that, what we found, which I find was, you know, we had a great number of interviews around this. I found it really interesting, is that you have fewer meetings. Because you had one meeting, it's a good debate, we decided. But in other companies, I have people telling me, you know what we do? We come to a meeting, there are 10 of us sitting in a meeting, and we discuss, it's a bad discussion, we don't go anywhere. After an hour, we had to say, we didn't resolve the issue, and so we need to schedule a follow-up meeting. And then next two weeks, there's a follow-up meeting, and sometimes that goes badly, so they had to have a third meeting for stuff that could have been done in the first meeting. So now you're wasting time. And should people have meetings where they are essentially update meetings? No. There's a ton of those meetings. I have a great, I bought this mug. You can get it on Amazon. It's not my mug, but it's great. I bought one because I want to have one on my office desk. It says, I survived an other meeting that should have been an email. <laughs> I like that. These are status meetings. These are, you know, if you go to a meeting and you call in 15 people, and as a manager, you sit there and you say, let me update you what happened. And then you start reading down the list. Why have you asked 15 people to come and sit and listen to you? I mean, you could have recorded your own little selfie video if you want to make it more animated and send that video out. Let me tell you about this thing. Now, you could have scheduled a meeting of, say, 15 minutes or half an hour if people had questions. Or you could have said, if you have questions or concerns about what I just said, email them to me and you know then we can have a meeting. But people sit there in status update meeting and they just read down the list of stuff. And then people get bored and they start asking questions and then they derail the status update. Well, it's terrible. You should not have those. To be disciplined around the way you use your time, 
is to be disciplined about the kinds of meetings you schedule. So coming back and making this really practical for somebody listening, what is one action step that you would give them today, right now, that they could start implementing to begin to make progress on one of the core themes or ideas that we've talked about today? Right. I think it's the do less than obsess idea. And this is what I would do. Take a look at your calendar the next two weeks and ask yourself, what are the one or two things I can cut out and cut those things out? Say no to something or don't accept the invitation. And then you say, okay, I just freed up four hours of my time. And then you say, instead of, you know, wasting those four hours, you say, okay, what is the most important thing I need to get done the next two weeks? And now I've just got four more hours to do that. And then you go and you spend those four hours on that one most important thing. And if you do this, this one practical thing, then just do it over the next two weeks. And then you say to yourself, okay, how did that feel? If I accomplished that one task, I freed up four hours and I focused on my most important thing those four hours. Then the next two weeks again, you can do the same. Maybe free up another hour, right? Because these things I'm talking about, these principles, the seven habits that we talk about for top performance in our book, they are behaviors. They are not innate characteristics. They can be improved upon bit by bit every day. So that practical thing of saying no to two things the next two weeks is a path towards becoming incredibly focused and going all in on a few things. And that is the key to this because none of us, or very few of us can sort of switch from being really bad at something to incredibly good at something over the next week. It takes time and practice. It's a muscle that needs to be developed. So try that principle, that one tactic, and see how it felt like having those extra four hours and, and spending them on the most important thing, and then do it again the next two weeks. And for listeners who want to find you and your work online, what is the best place for them to do that? Yeah, so going to my website is the best place, and that's mortenhansen.com, M-O-R-T-E-N-H-A-N-S-E-N.com. And we have a free resource that I think a lot of listeners would like. We have created a quiz, a very quick sort of five-minute assessment tool that you can take online about how you stack up currently on the seven habits that are in, in the book, Great at Work. And then we also, once you've done it, you just go in and punch in the numbers where you fall. And then it gives you a report card on how you stack up against the more than 20,000 people who have taken it so far. So you get a little bit of benchmark of yourself. Where are you in relationship to everyone else out there? Well, Morton, thank you so much for coming on the show, for sharing all this wisdom, some really important research, really important data, and hopefully some people listening out there really take this to heart and implement these ideas. Well, thank you for having me. It's been great. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. We created this show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email. I'm going to give you three reasons why you should sign up for our email list today by going to successpodcast.com, signing up right on the homepage. There's some incredible stuff that's only available to those on the email list, so be sure to sign up, including 
an exclusive curated weekly email from us called Mindset Monday, which is short, simple, filled with articles, stories, things that we found interesting and fascinating in the world of evidence-based growth in the last week. Next, you're getting an exclusive chance to shape the show, including voting on guests, submitting your own personal questions that we'll ask guests on air, and much more. Lastly, you're going to get a free guide we created based on listener demand, our most popular guide, which is called How to Organize and Remember Everything. You can get it completely for free, along with another surprise bonus guide by signing up and joining the email list today. Again, you can do that at successpodcast.com, sign up right at the homepage, or if you're on the go, just text the word SMARTER, S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Remember, the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps boost the algorithm that helps us move up the iTunes rankings and helps more people discover the science of success. Don't forget, if you want to get all the incredible information we talk about in the show, links, transcripts, everything we discuss, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get those at successpodcast.com. Just hit the show notes button right at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success. Success.